You're listening to Talking Taiwan with your host, Felicia Lin. Dr. Bonnie Ling is a scholar and practitioner who works on international human rights and development. She is executive director of Better Work Innovations, a research consultancy with a community service mission working on new ideas for responsible economy. We spoke about her work with migrant workers, the challenges that Taiwan has faced in dealing with migrant workers, why it is important for Taiwan to address the wider challenges of combating human trafficking and modern slavery. She also spoke about her forced labor project that is going to take her back to Taiwan to work with SMEs, small-medium enterprises, in December. In Taiwan, 98% of all businesses are small-medium enterprises, and they employ close to 80% of the total domestic workforce. The European Union, EU, defines a small enterprise as one with less than 50 employees and a medium enterprise as one with less than 250 employees. This episode of Talking Taiwan has been sponsored by NATOA, the North America Taiwanese Women's Association. NATOA was founded in 1988 and its mission is 1. To evoke a sense of self-esteem and enhance women's dignity. 2. To oppose gender discrimination and promote gender equality. 3. To fully develop women's potential and encourage their participation in public affairs. 4. To contribute to the advancement of human rights and democratic development in Taiwan. 5. To reach out and work with women's organizations worldwide to promote peace for all. To learn more about NADWA, visit their website, www.natwa.com. Without further ado, here's our interview. Welcome to the podcast, Bonnie. Thanks to you. Thank you for having me to join you today on this very important conversation. I'm so happy that we finally made it happen, right? The time difference, travel schedules and everything. Yeah, for sure. Could you start by telling me how you got interested and involved with the work that you do and your connection to Taiwan? Well, I was born in Taiwan, in Taipei, apparently on a very cold winter's day. And, uh, you know, a lot of family stories about how my father was in a panic because he, you know, was born early. So yeah, all that. So I hail from Taiwan and uh, moved to the States when I was young. So I grew up in Atlanta, Georgia. And I think, you know, and this identifies with so many people that it is, you know, the story of migration, the various facets of migration. It's different when you have experienced that journey. And uh, I see it as when I work on these issues of advocacy, it's also the type of future I want to see for my kids, you know. So it's not us speaking for them. It's very much me speaking for the type of future I want for us, for people like me who look a little bit old, trying to fit in and trying to thrive and prosper. So I see that commonality and I think it's so important that we see the migration journey outside this lens of wage. You know, there's a very big difference whether or not you consider high wage or low wage workers. The system of recruitment is different. 
And, you know, I also get some comments sometimes when, you know, I remember I lived in Switzerland for close to 12 years and uh, our stroller, baby stroller was stolen from right outside our apartment. And apparently that never happens. And I remember talking to a neighbor and he looked at me, you know, in the face, shook his head, head and said, oh, it's all those migrants coming to Switzerland. <laughs> oh, wow. So he didn't mean it to offend me because he said it very sympathetically. But I was really taken aback, right? Because what do you say to such a comment? And when I retold the story to you know others, they would say, oh, he didn't see you as a migrant. You know, and they meant it as a badge of acceptance or something. I don't mm. see that distinction, you know. I was really taken aback. Can you just imagine? Yeah. So I think, you know, we need to speak more and to understand the universality of our experiences. And I think discrimination comes a lot. Yeah. Yeah, you know, it's very interesting because I was reminded of this when I interviewed this filmmaker and she was Taiwanese and immigrated to the U.S. and she talked about how the power dynamic influenced her job situations because she didn't have the immigration status. So she did kind of imply that you could be taken advantage of because they would expect certain things for you because they know that you're dependent on them for your immigration status. And so they may expect more from you or pay you less or whatever the case would be. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it is something, abuse of vulnerability is an indicator of forced labor, you know, defined by the International Labor Organization. And that issue of vulnerability needs to be broadly understood, you know, that it is also very much framed on the principle of non-discrimination and human rights law, that they are categories of people needing protection. And there are some where, you know, the gap between the law and practice is quite pronounced, you know. I think one of the things that came very much to the fore, especially during COVID, was the hate against Asians, right? I spoke about this last year at a talk, Hate Crimes Against Asians. And I was also speaking of cases here in the UK of hate crimes against Chinese restaurant owners, you know, died in very brutal fashion, but it's not as widely known. And it was really, yeah, you know, and then we share experiences of how during COVID, they were, you know, people walking past making remarks and things like that, you know. But I gave this talk and then one person came up and was kind of really taken aback, you know, and it was a little bit like by speaking of hate and the discrimination against migrants, am I not causing more hate? You know, and I was so taken aback by that because it was so, it was as if by speaking of hate, I stepped out of that box of what I was expected. Maybe people don't expect me to speak of that, you know, but I think it's so important that if we all speak of these things and frame the universality of the migration experience as we experience it and we take away, chip away a little bit at this wage, you know, stigma, 
very interesting. So the feedback you got from this person that they were, maybe they were uncomfortable that you were speaking about it. Yeah, probably. Probably. You know, I was troubled by it. Yeah. You know, for quite a bit. But, you know, I invited dialogue, you know, as you do at these academic forums to try to get an understanding. But uh, you get to a point when it just wasn't going anywhere. And I remember right afterwards, I flew back to Taiwan where I was quarantined, right? So I was in a hotel for 14 days. And I remember just getting an email from this audience member. And it was so, you know, it wasn't pleasant. But it really got me thinking about in us speaking and advocating for migrant rights, are we also defy expectations of what our role should be? Are we expected to be placid and just watch and not say? Is that expectation of us as, you know, for whatever reason, not to raise these issues? And it struck me quite profoundly because so much of what I do is about amplifying the voices of the migrant workers themselves, you know, those who have suffered tremendously. I mean, it is their testimonies that are so powerful, their original voice or their own aspirations, how they want to be seen. What's the remedy they seek? You know, that is so powerful. Yeah. That's very interesting. Do you think that it perhaps is because it was within an academic context and then people don't like to be faced with these things? I don't know. Yeah. But it's it was also... I mean, I gave a talk that very much started with hate crimes against Asians during COVID, and I broadened it to hate crimes even before COVID, right? That was for me very important to show that this is not new. You know, it has always existed. And, you know, there was only more attention focused on it during the last two years. And I kind of broaden it out to the issue of labor recruitment and abuses suffered by migrant workers in the world. So, you know, it comes with the territory. And I also, I think for me personally, I need very much to gravitate towards points of hope. You know, so very often I would ask my colleagues, you know, I said, okay, now you have to balance the universe. Now you have to tell me a good story. You know, because if you work a lot on forced labor, you know, you do need that recalibration to remind you that there is some progress and there are good hearts, there are changes, there are courageous people. Yes. And that's important, you know, so, you know, the person is just a footnote maybe. Yeah. But it did strike me, you know. I moderated an event last week and there were two workers to, who worked in the construction sector in Qatar for the World Cup that's coming up in five days with the first game. And they were so powerful in what they spoke about. You know, there were, there are a lot of migrant abuses, exploitation associated with the World Cup games in the construction, especially in the construction sector, but not only. And so I think back to those moments, you know, I mean, the cost for them to speak up, you know, to be whistleblowers or what they solve, what they experienced, that disappointment, missing home. You know, there was this one person from Nepal who spoke of craving a cup of water and wanting just a little bit more ice, you know, 
because it was so wow. hot, because it could get so hot in Qatar. Yeah, so those moments, I think, is, is the fuel for me when I think about we have an unjust system in which migrant workers are recruited in the world today. How do we put our heads together and nudge where we can to push for a change, you know, to push yeah. for a world where there's more recognition for the importance of their labor and to be treated with more dignity. Right. So we're going to be talking a little bit more specifically about migrant worker issues in Taiwan. And I thought before we go into this, because you do a lot of work in this domain, and there are a lot of terms that are related to this that are probably going to be part of this conversation, like human trafficking, modern slavery, that sort of thing. Can we talk about these terms and how they're related and how they're distinguished from each other? That's a really good question, Felicia. <laughs> yeah, that's a really, really good question. I was just asked this question about a couple of weeks ago online, and it was something like at a cocktail party. How would you describe, how would you explain labor exploitation, human trafficking, and modern slavery, you know? And uh, they threw it to me to answer. So it got me thinking, you know, <laughs> so I said my answer was, okay, at a cocktail party, I would say that modern slavery is like very bad labor exploitation. I think we all kind of intuitively know when a labor situation is not good. But modern slavery and all that it denotes is a particularly just really bad because it invokes what we know about, you know, old slavery, this sense that, you know, all the powers attached with the ownership of a person, right, by another. And we don't have that anymore. We have forms, practices, and institutions that are similar to, to have this, you know, coercive control over another person. And then, but modern slavery in itself is not a term that we see in international law. We see that in various domestic law, like in the UK, we have the Modern Slavery Act. In Australia, there's also the Modern Slavery Act. Hong Kong at one point was thinking about doing the same. So there are differences in various local legal contexts. Mm -hmm. Now, but what is generally understood, and this is probably like too much for a cocktail party, you know, you know, modern slavery, usually you have element of forced marriage and then you have forced labor. So it has like two different categories. And then, you know, maybe if the person's interested at the cocktail party, they would ask, well, what is forced labor? How is it different from human trafficking? So then you kind of go down this hole a little bit more. If they're interested, you know, if they're still listening, is like the definition of human trafficking is actually quite complicated. It's like something like 200 words. But it does have forced labor in it as a form of exploitation. So all these concepts are kind of, they overlap. They're like cousins, you know, there are differences that, you know, if you really want to go down, you can, you can tease them out. But generally, when we talk about human trafficking, you know, we're looking at forced labor. We're looking at all the things that happen, the act and the means that are used to, you know, exploit a person for his or her labor. And then we get into forced labor, 
which is, you know, a lot of what we do, uh, me and my colleagues, is looking at the risk of foresight in the global supply chain. And then you go into another technical domain where you look at the indicators of what they are and uh, areas of risk. So in general, that's already longer than the cocktail answer I would have gave. But I think it just shows that it is complicated. And I think because it's so complicated, we tend to use shorthands. We tend to say, okay, that's modern slavery without really looking under the label and to understand what they are. Okay. I am actually still not sure if I'm clear on what the difference is. I know that there's this. No, like, please ask. Please like, ask. Maybe I didn't yeah, explain yeah, it very yeah. well. Yeah. No, no. I mean, because I'm just thinking, is there some aspect of someone being a force against their will or perhaps somebody initially thinking that they're going into some situation willingly, but then it's not exactly what they expect. I wonder if there's also a nuance there. Oh, yeah, absolutely. The definition for Forsaiba, it's about a 100 years old, and it's really such a beautiful definition because we can still use it now, today. I, I had a quick conversation with somebody in Taiwan. They said, oh, it's such an old definition. Is it still relevant? But if you look at it, it basically says there are two components to forced labor. One is there's a menace of penalty. There's a threat, you know, that compels the person to do the labor. And then the second component, which is like the beauty of the de definition, is looking at the element of voluntariliness, you know, on whether or not you, me, have agreed to do the work voluntarily. You know, so these two things are given equal weight. So, you you know, so there is that menace of penalty and then there's that element of voluntariliness. Mm -hmm. And I think for voluntariness, the clues that we look for are actually more complicated, you know, than that existence of a threat, you know, that penalty. Because then you look at, well, were you deceived about your work? How much did deception play in your agreement to do the work? I mean, we know about issues of things like contract substitution, that migrant workers, or anyone really, right, they could be given one contract thinking that they're doing this. But then when they start the work, they find out, well, you know, this is not what I thought I would do. Then it touches upon the issue of voluntariness, that there was no genuine consent to do the work. Another question that comes up, which surprised me was, can it be forced labor if it's undocumented worker? You know, absolutely. The definition of forced labor, it is so simple and pithy, and it's adaptable to any circumstance. It doesn't have to be formal work. It can also be informal work. It could be services. It could be production. It could be manufacturing. It could be domestic work, you know, the work that's not seen. So I think going forward, there needs to be more understanding in Taiwan, particularly on the element of voluntariness, you know, of the worker. Yeah, I think that's interesting to point that out because while in some cases people may think that they're entering a certain situation, it may not be what they thought. And that's also could be classified as forced labor. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's so much nuance to tease out. And I think sometimes people, if I could just go back to this perception of all the terms that, you know, you asked me about modern slavery, 
human trafficking, forced labor. I think people intuitively know it's not a good labor situation, right? You don't want you, your kid, anyone you know to end in that. But things like, well, is that restriction of movement if there are no chains? If there are no fences, is that restriction of movement? Which is one of the indicators of forced labor. Because I think we tend to think of it as workers, chained workers, if we think back to slavery, right? But the definition and the indicators are actually more nuanced than that. It says where the workers do not have genuine freedom of movement. So then it doesn't have to be chains. It doesn't have to be fences. In fact, the vast majority of the cases we see are not cages or chains. It goes back to the central element of voluntariness. Yeah, it's so complicated. This could be a whole conversation because there's a lot of psychological factors and things also. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I love the fact that you, you speak of that, you know, this element of psychological coercion and fear, you know, and it goes back to this idea of abuse of vulnerability. I love what I do, you know, because every case is like a puzzle, you know, like a mental puzzle that you pull out, pull out the threads and trying to understand not only the law, not only the practice, but also from the person's perspective, you know, from the worker's perspective. Like one of the indicators of forced labor is abusive working and living conditions. And when you have a chance to talk to workers about this indicator, they would tell you just the most detailed element of their days, because that's what they experience. Very regimental days may not have genuine freedom of movement. You know, they're telling you things about bed sheets that it hasn't been replaced, a window that creaks at night and they can't sleep and they're so tired from overtime that they need that sleep and couldn't get it. It's just so powerful. I think especially when you have workers themselves doing the interviews, speaking to their fellow workers, trying to understand the extent of their exploitation. Right. So you mentioned this a little bit. During COVID, there was a lot of media coverage in Taiwan, particularly about how certain migrant workers were being treated. In Taiwan, I know that there's different types. There's the factory workers, the domestic home health care workers, migrant fishermen. I'm not sure if that's all the categories, but what I'm referring to was more specifically about the factory workers. Can we talk about what was going on there? And also, has there been anything done about that since? Yes. You're talking about the movement restrictions that were imposed on the migrant workers, factory workers, especially for the electronic supply chains in Taiwan. That happened in June of 2021. And there was great pressure to keep the electronic supply chain going because the world was experiencing shortage. Everything was affected. People couldn't buy cars here because the chips weren't made fast enough. So I think employers and brokers felt this pressure to keep the supply chain going at all cost. And then you have local authorities who impose restrictions on migrant workers. And in Miaoli, at first, the movement ban covered both, cover migrant workers in the domestic care sector and also factory workers. 
And later, the part for domestic workers were repealed because a lot of families, Taiwanese families, said that doesn't make sense. Grandma and grandpa still need to go out to the park. You know, this affected us. This made no sense. So that was taken away, but it it stayed for the factory workers. Now the measure said they were transported to and from the workplace. And then you had very strict restrictions on things like they shouldn't do shopping, that their provisions would be somebody else, usually the brokers, the labor brokers would get it for them. But the measure um, did not make scientific sense in terms of a public health standpoint and it also made no legal sense. It had no legal basis because the migrant workers, they were working side by side, you know, with Taiwanese workers. But such restrictions were not seen for Taiwanese workers, so it just didn't make sense. But I think it was an you know, easy win for the politician, right? Because this restriction happened against this background of discrimination. Even before this happened, there were a lot of press about how maybe they didn't understand the imperative of public health control. You know, a lot of these very negative stigma that came out to the fore. So kind of like an ugly underbelly of racism. So I think we cannot deny that that happened, that the measures were imposed discriminatorily. Now, since then, the control yuan of Taiwan, which is the oversight body, has come out with the report saying the same thing, that it was discriminatory and it also didn't make sense from a public health standpoint. It actually went further and said to the Ministry of Labor and also the health authorities needed to communicate better, more promptly. Yes, it was an emergency, but there needs to be improvements made going forward on information sharing. So a lot of the migrant workers are very dependent on labor brokers for information, for, you know, translation service and information. So the Control UN report also talk about these bottlenecks of information. So that has happened domestically. Now, internationally, what has happened is also that this Miaoli movement restrictions and the coverage that has received also increased the spotlight on Taiwan and migrant rights. And uh, there's a lot of momentum now to really understand the Taiwanese context. Why is this happening in Taiwan? You know, everyone has a connection to Taiwan with or without them knowing it, right? The smartphone that we carry probably very likely have a component part yeah, from Taiwan. Computers, everything. Anything. Semiconductor alone, right? Yeah. I think like 90% of the world's high-end chips come from Taiwan. That's really, really staggering. So I think internationally, there's a lot of momentum to understand the situation for migrant workers in Taiwan. What are their abuses they're facing? And this stands in such sharp contrast to Taiwan's projection as a liberal democracy, you know, respecting human rights. So there's that gap in what Taiwan says and what people read about a situation of migrant workers in Taiwan. And I think, I always think when I look at it in the broader diplomatic perspective, is that Taiwan's alienation from the UN system in some way means that we're all a little bit like ambassadors, right? 
I mean, we are often the only one at the dinner party and they look at us and said, so what's going on, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and we have to explain the history of Taiwan, like that cocktail party, right? <laughs> like, okay, how is it different? Right. What is it you want, you know? Is there war? Is there not war? You know, we often have to take up that function and formal function. And I think here, the knee-jerk reaction by employers, by brokers, by some politicians to do this, massive on goal, you know, massive on goal that it brought in a lot of actions, a lot of scrutiny on Taiwan. Rightfully so. Yeah. And it was also interesting, I think that Indonesia was one of the few countries that actually took a stand for its migrant workers because there are a lot of domestic workers that come from Indonesia to work in Taiwan, right? Yeah. Can you talk about what Indonesia's stance was and what they did and what's been the outcome of their action? Felicia, I am so glad you're asking that because it's so interesting and it's a little bit like a you know, TV series in multiple parts, you know, in terms <laughs> of the drama and everything. So let's see, what month was it? In 2020, in 2020, Indonesia came out and they pushed very much for zero fees, which means that all the calls of recruitment is borne by the employers and it's not picked up by the workers themselves. What we have today is a system where the low-wage migrant workers, they pay their own recruitment calls, you know, recruitment fees for their job abroad. So we don't see this for high-wage migrant workers. You know, migrant workers has this low-wage connotation, but this is not seen in international law. The international legal definition of a migrant worker simply means you're working in a country where you're not the national it doesn't have this class or wage distinctions. So if you're working, you know, like me, I'm American, I'm in the UK, I am a migrant worker. But what we see now is the low-wage migrant workers, when they go to another place, you know, when they go to Taiwan, for instance, they have to pay a lot of fees associated with that job in Taiwan. You know, and these fees are complicated Internationally, they're kind of broken down into three categories. So you have the placement fees that's dealing with the administrative burden of matching you with the job. And then you have related costs of things around that. So it could be like job training. You know, it could be like medical checks. It could be passport. It's transportation, you know, accommodation and flight. And then you have the third category, which is all the fees that are not legal, that are not disclosed, and they're not legitimate. So they're usually under the table stuff, you know, no receipt given, very hard to trace. For a worker, let's say from Indonesia coming to Taiwan, they have to pay a list of these fees and costs. And it means that when they start, before their first day of work in Taiwan, they're indebted. You know, they have to work to pay back this debt with their own monthly wage. And then depending on how heavy the fees is, after a certain amount of time, then they can start to build up that savings nest egg that drove them outside to seek employment. And this is the system that has been in place in Taiwan and elsewhere for a fourth decade, I think. Yeah, since 1991, since Taiwan first accepted migrant workers 
Employment Service Act, I think, came in in 1991. So I think it's a problem, right? So also for the migrant workers from Nepal going to Qatar, Bangladesh going to Qatar for the World Cup. I mean, before they go to Qatar, they're indebted. They pay these recruitment fees. So I think it just puts them in a place of vulnerability before their first day of work. If you have this pressure to pay back the loan, and oftentimes, you know, it's your family that has taken out the loan, so you feel like you can't fail. So you're not going to report abuse, right? You're going to kind of allow your passport to be confiscated in order not to really kick up a fuss with your employer or the labor broker. So it kind of puts you in a situation where you're not even starting on an even footing. You embed a lot of the forced labor risks into the beginning of the journey itself. So there's a lot of push and a lot of awareness right now on this high-risk area. This is also a high-risk area very much for Taiwan because if you look under the hood, a lot of migrant workers coming to Taiwan pay these fees. And it's the same issues of debt bondage, vulnerability that we know in other corridors. And so hopefully there's being a light shown on this issue globally too. Yeah. And I say this every time when I'm back in Taiwan for meetings, I say this. See what's happening abroad, you know, see them as challenges that Taiwan must face and proactively solve today. So now, sorry, I got a bit distracted because that's okay. Yeah. It's such a, it's such an important issue. And, but Indonesia in 2020 came out and said they support this zero fee system and they want their workers. I think it was domestic care and fishing to not pay fees in, I think, a list of 10 something destinations. Mm-hmm. And Taiwan was one of them. Okay. And loans and also others like Hong Kong, Singapore and others. But it elicited such a strong and negative reaction from the Taiwanese government, particularly the Ministry of Labor. I see. And I remember reading about the quotes that were coming out, and I just thought, we cannot be saying this. I mean, I think she even said things like, well, if Indonesia does this, we're going to recruit elsewhere. And I just thought, gosh... This sounds so bad, you know, especially for Taiwan as a, you know, there's a human rights shield also to our diplomatic efforts. The problem is it's a difficult policy space because this is the standard system for how we recruit workers for so long. So, of course, it's going to take so much effort and awareness to change it. There are things in the law that allows this and we need to change the law. But it's also in the hearts and minds of people in Taiwan, that this is not the way going forward. It doesn't make sense for our economy. It doesn't make sense for the liberal image that we project. So in Indonesia, what happened was, you know, it was announced in the summer of 2020, and they said they were implemented in January 2021. And then they couldn't implement it due to lack of funding at the local level. So it wasn't done. There's no place in the world now where you have the zero fee system. You know, low-wage migrant workers are charged. Where we see positive spots are areas outside the law. So there's no place where legally is prohibited. But we see a lot of private industry initiatives of brands exerting their leverage in their supply chain through contracts, telling their suppliers very far down that they cannot charge workers fees. 
they have to bear the cost themselves. Yeah, it's a difficult thing because I think that it needs to be more than just Indonesia, right? Because, for example, there's the Philippines and there's other countries that have that send a lot of migrant workers to Taiwan. And so if there was more collaboration or a lot of these countries all cooperated and took a stand, then maybe they would be able to push something like this through. And now for a short break. Hello listeners, we're going to be experimenting with some shorter form content, under 20 minutes long, and we'd like to hear from you. Would you like to listen to shorter episodes? What would you like to hear more of or less of? Email us at podcast at talkingtaiwan.com. We also have a special announcement for all of our donors, past, present, and future. We're giving all of our donors exclusive first listening access to upcoming interviews with Karen Lin, Democratic candidate for Justice of the Civil Court in Queens, New York. Chin Chi Yang, a multidisciplinary artist who was recently inducted into the New York Foundation for the Arts Hall of Fame. Michelle Kuo, an attorney, activist, and author of Reading with Patrick, which is a runner-up for the Dayton Literary Peace Prize and the Goddard Riverside Stefan Russo Book Prize for Social Justice. Ed Lin, author of Death Doesn't Forget, and Joe Henley, author of Migrante. If you want exclusive access to these episodes and more, support Talking Taiwan by making a contribution to our GoFundMe campaign. We are so grateful for our growing listenership and all the support that we've been receiving. Now, back to the episode. Yeah, I agree with you completely. And it needs to be like all hands on deck effort, you know, not just governments, but also industry partners companies, organizations play a heavy normative role. But also, I think for Taiwan, it's very much about changing the minds of families, you know, conversations over the dinner table on whether or not a new system is possible. So in Indonesia, I mean, they sent about 260, I think the latest count was like close to 270,000 migrant workers to Taiwan. And most of them, I think 70% of them are placed in a domestic care sector where I think 99% of them are female or women migrant workers. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So the part that I was talking about how, you know, this is a little bit like a TV series with multiple parts is that the latest part is that in August, bilateral discussions between Indonesia and Taiwan led to the increase in the wage, in the monthly wage for domestic okay. care workers. So that went up. And uh, so the it was wage celebrated. for all domestic care workers has been raised in Taiwan? Well, the thing is, you know, again, this is like the details, you know, that sometimes it's hard to get to at a cocktail party. <laughs> and the things that I'm really fascinated by as well, because it's always like in the caveats and how things are framed, you know, who is excluded, what other problems would it cause? So the problem is, so they increased the wage. Now, it was celebrated as a win. And I think the wage should have been increased. So let's celebrate that. But the caveat is the wage for domestic care workers hasn't gone up for seven years, right? I think it was something like seven years. So, you know, it's about time. It's only right that it went up. 
But then one of the conditions was that it did not extend to domestic care workers in Taiwan that were already on old contracts. So it was only the new incoming ones that got this pay raise. And I think that's highly problematic, right? Because already the system introduces a bias, you know, feeling of discontent between different groups of migrant workers. And then another part of this TV saga is that there was this noise made in bilateral discussions between Indonesia and Taiwan about how, what was the phrase used? Like Taiwan would be exempt from zero fees or something, you know? Mm. And I just thought that made no sense. It just absolutely made no sense. I don't even understand why it was one of the talking points for, you know, for the press coverage coming out of this. It made no sense because you cannot stop a government from trying to protect their citizens abroad. That's their job. That's why we have consular services. Was the implication that Taiwan says that Indonesia has to take that off the table, that they can't ask yeah, for that? Something to that something to that effect. Let's see. It could be, you know, who knows? Maybe it was bad framing for one press article, but yeah. I don't think it was it was not fully understanding the imperative moving to zero fees because more and more attention internationally is coming on this topic. This is not a storm that we can wait out. I think a lot of companies might think, okay, is this just something they're focusing on, you know, maybe like net zero. And then I would also say that's also not something that Taiwan can wait out. We need to look at this creatively and think about ways we can address this going forward. Now, what is so interesting is that I think the language they used was something like one of the talking points was that Taiwanese employers do not accept the zero fee policy. And there was this idea that it could be taken off the table for Taiwan. Right. But it didn't make sense for Taiwan to be associated with that position. It's contrary to the liberal and human rights image that it projects, then it fundamentally underestimate the momentum that's around zero fees right now. I know it's difficult. I think it's a challenge with a very steep slope. Um, And if I could be like a devil's advocate and say something like, what would you say to the people who are like, but how does this affect the economy or how people feel like these migrant workers come from other countries where there may be a difference in the standard of living or the currency valuation or whatever so that they can be paid less than what a local worker would be paid. And that's fair because they're taking that money back to their country or using that money to support their family back there, which the so-called dollar goes further. And that's okay because they're still able to make this wage to support their family. But yet, in the case of if they're working in Taiwan, the person paying them in Taiwan can also benefit from that so that they can pay less for their labor or their service. And maybe this is some competitive benefit that is not necessarily bad if we have migrant workers. I mean, I hear that a lot too, you know, and I think so often, like the, the framing of the question, you know, set it up for a certain outcome where in some ways it's like the question I would offer in response would be, well, let's look at the facts, right? Taiwan aging population. 
people are not, you know, the birth rate has been declining. I think, is it the third year straight now, right? We cannot hire enough people in manufacturing. And the Ministry of Labor has recently made important policy decisions on trying to retain skilled migrant workers. The point being that they understand the regional context. They have to compete with, for instance, and already we see this, like Vietnam, Vietnamese workers going abroad, two major destinations, Japan and Taiwan, and more. If you see how that breaks down, more in the over the years have decided to go to Japan, not Taiwan. It has increased. So it needs to be a race to the top, not to the bottom. I think another implications of a race to the bottom strategy is that Taiwan pays for that. You know, maybe that cannot be quantified in new Taiwan dollars, but Taiwan definitely pays for that. And I mean, look at the spat of negative publicity on cases of migrant abuse, you know, always pop up regularly. And this is not even mentioning the big ones that come out, you know, when the U.S. government releases this human rights report or its trafficking persons report every summer, right? So Taiwan incurs a diplomatic cost. Also, diplomatic cost that would be good, I think, for the image that it projects as a responsible global citizen. So, you know, the cost comes out of somewhere. So I always try to kind of frame it and say, well, what is this nation that we try to be, does it meet what we say and what we're doing? I think it's always complicated. I know discussions on this tend to be binary in the sense that Taiwan is or isn't a good human rights place. And uh, as always, it's hard, right? Change doesn't come in a day. But I think this issue is so fundamental to the Taiwanese economy. And Taiwanese economy is made up of SMEs, right? Small and medium enterprises. 99% of the island's business enterprises are SMEs, right? So under 200 people, 200 employees. So it is very much about convincing family businesses, small firms, that there is another way that's possible. It's harder in the short term, but it would be better for the viability of the Taiwanese economy and also for Taiwan as a project. I don't know if that's making sense. Yeah. No, no, but just intuitively, as I'm hearing you say this, it does seem like it would be better because for a retention to attract more skilled labor, it just seems like that would be a better practice if you had better wages and better conditions. Yeah, and we see this, right? We, we know that workers that come in, not indebted before they start their work abroad, tend to be happier. The turnover rate is not as high, meaning that businesses do not have to, you know, incur that cost of constantly training, training. I kind of, I heard this reflected at one of the discussions I had in Taiwan, which is how employers, you know, what to do about migrant workers always wanting to change jobs. And, you know, their view was, oh, but we pay for them already and they keep on changing. You know, it's unfair. How do we stop? You know, how do we share the costs of bringing them in and then them running away or they want to go to another job? And I think, again, that's the difference in framing, right? I think the question is, why are they leaving? Why do they want to change jobs? Is that a dialogue that has happened? To really hear from them, what is it about this job that you find dissatisfying? You know, 
that you find? Is it because it's not what you thought, point of signing the contract and what you saw in Taiwan? You know, things like that. I think there's a lot of missed opportunities for a very genuine, honest talk that Commission Reagan writes. Right. And to get to the root of some. Yeah. But I'm just saying, but it's a hard dialogue to have. Right. I yeah. mean, I get that because it's it's like going to a meeting where you know you're going to be dissected and torn apart and say all the things you did wrong. And it might be misunderstandings. Oh, I didn't mean it like that. You know, there's an example that I really like, you know, going back to that definition of force labor that we talked about, where it has the menace of penalty and then voluntariliness. Right. So I don't start at a place where I think all employers are bad and they're out to, you know, exploit the workers. I don't think that's true. I think the picture is nuanced, complicated. Yes. There are bad actors, absolutely. But I think a lot of times people lack the awareness to know what forced labor indicators really are. So this is an example I really like. So in talking to the workers, you know, this issue of like a party came up, a karaoke singing party. And the employers were like, oh, remember that, you know, party we hosted and it was so great. We sang. We thought you had a good time, thought you enjoy your work. The workers said, yes, we had really fun time singing, but we thought we had to. They was like, they were obligated to go to the karaoke party. Yeah. Well, because, because we're not looking at the element of voluntariness because, you know, maybe it's an exaggeration. I think a lot of karaoke parties are fun and they're genuinely well intended and stuff. But I think there's another layer that's under the surface that we are not seeing, right? The workers were like, I think I would prefer to take that money with split it and I can send more money back home, right? Oh, yes. The money that they spend yeah. on throwing them at parties. Yeah, for, yeah. The, for the year-end thing, you know. Probably would have appreciated a cash bonus more. Cash bonus that can send back and replay their debts a lot faster, you know, save for household income back home. So I think I like that story also because it shows like this parallel discussion that we're not having, you know, we need to meet in this very honest space of expectations and missed expectations and all that, you know, like, could you just imagine the poor is like, I thought you had fun at the karaoke party and the worker's like, you mean I could really say no? <laughs> yeah. Can, yeah. Can I not just take the cash bonus? You know, that's interesting. Yeah. Right. Yeah, to think about being forced to go to a party or <laughs> obligated there's so many layers to this, like things that we see on the surface. And if we just probe a little bit deeper, like what is this another reality? And a lot of times that is such a complicated and heartfelt space. You can hear their stories of aspirations, why they migrate, what drove them out of their countries of origin. It's very complicated. I think a lot of times I also hear people say, well, they should, they shouldn't come then. And I said, well, who are we to take that chance away? People. Yeah have the right to make their decisions about looking at what the options are and decide on that. And I think some of these discussions sometimes becomes very much like a top-down discussion. And I think we need to meet in the space where honest, you know, difficult, and just to say, what's not working? Why are you changing jobs? Do you feel like this is not what you expected? Do you feel like you don't have genuine freedom of movement? And are there threats, intimidations in your job setting? Are the conditions abusive? These are difficult decisions because I believe in Taiwan, most Taiwanese employers would be hurt to think that they're seen to act with malicious intent. I don't think so. I think there's a lot of hope 
I think. Yeah, so it seems like there needs to be also a lot of education, awareness, and it's very complicated because there's a whole infrastructure that's related to this problem, right, with the employers, but then maybe also the brokers, and it could even start with the countries where these migrant workers are recruited. So how do we deal with all this? It seems like we need to deal with this infrastructure or the machine that's involved with the hiring and bringing over migrant workers. And maybe this is a good entree for you to talk about your project. Felicia, I really thank you for engaging with me, you know, on the complexities. I really love such detail discussions. I always think, you know, I have this analogy in my head, like we know like the car is not working, right? It's just not working. It's like sputtering. It's making strange sounds and it's just, you're not even sure if it runs the next time you start the engine. That's how I see the migration system. It's not working. But how do we fix it? You know, you open the hood and you're just kind of like stunned by all the parts, right? All these little bolts and things. Yeah. And that's how I right. see the labor migration system. Kind of like what you said. You know, there's not only Taiwan, there are also countries of origin and so many different actors, right? You have labor brokers and then you have different types of labor brokers. Some are large, some are small, you know, and then you have informal labor brokers. And those, I think we call in Chinese, like to, like head of cows, you know, that kind of connect people together. And that's where a lot of the legal calls come in, you know, like bribes and asking them to connect you to a, to someone who might connect you to a job opportunity in Taiwan, you know, so it's a very murky chain. So it's like nuts and parts that don't fit. They don't look like they go anywhere, but that's the system we have. So how do we tackle it? This project, the starting point for this project, it's forced labor education. So we go through all the 11 forced labor indicators with a lot of nuance. So we kind of tease out all these complexities, but the challenge is to do it in a way that's not overwhelming or scary, right? Because a lot of times in international legal documents are not written in a way that's easily accessible. So the trick is to kind of calibrate it to kind of show that it could be properly understood. And with that, with that very good grounding in awareness, we can start to put all of our heads together, understand where the risks are, and think about how do we address these risks and change. The ultimate goal is to change, to change the law that permit some of these bad practices to still happen. And then bring Taiwan, the whole system, to a place where migrant workers are seen as valued for their contribution to their economy, to the society that they're needed. And going forward, it could be a very different image of Taiwan on issues of migrant rights. So in short, that is the project. But yeah, that's the hope that carries the project as well. But we'll be rolling out a series of trainings in Xinzhu, Taichung, and Kaohsiung aimed at small and medium enterprises. So we go through the IOO, International Labor Organization's Forced Labor Indicators, with them and talk about the Taiwanese context. So we actually use the COVID movement restrictions as one of the examples for, for the guidebook, you know, because it was immediate. Yeah, that's a very concrete example that people can relate to. Have you done this sort of work before or do you know of any other projects like this and what can we learn from their example? What did they accomplish? 
The answer is yes and no. I do some amount of work on labor rights. So a lot of the work involves understanding these indicators and how they fit against practice and how do we mitigate and how do we put in things to prevent it from happening again, to identify risks, to prevent risks, and then how to account for abuses that happen. So in a way, it's not new. But what is new about this project is we're starting at the front end. You know, We're starting at the front end of education and prevention with the hope that with more awareness, with more people in this space undertaking this difficult conversation, that we can put all the minds together and trying, you know, slowly, slowly built in a system that can change where we don't embed so many forced labor risk in a migrant worker's journey to Taiwan. So I think it is new in that way. And uh, we are aiming it squarely at the SMEs because of their importance in the Taiwanese economy. But then, of course, if you're talking about, you know, SMEs, there are like the heart and soul of Taiwan, right? I mean, I think all of us are just like maybe a degree or two degrees removed from a factory, from knowing a factory owner. <laughs> mm-hmm. so, especially if you live in the Taiwanese countryside, right? You kind of, in the extended family, you kind of know somebody who knows somebody. Yeah, it's just so interesting, the statistic that you quoted, like how, what high percentage of the businesses in Taiwan are SMEs. So it makes sense. Yeah, and they employ, I think, 80% of the domestic workforce. And this figure is higher than Japan. I think Japanese SMEs employ, I think, 60% of the domestic workforce. But for Taiwan, it's 80%. So it's like, you know, the island has this core of ping for the economy of kind of walking this very difficult. I mean, SMEs are hard, right? I mean, they're, they're hard. Even some of the major entrepreneurs that we know about, we know how much they struggle when they were setting up their business, you know, when they grew. So it's very difficult. But I think that hope is by doing these trainings, we try to kind of plug the capacity gap for SMEs because these issues sometimes are seen as difficult to understand, you know. Yeah. I think it's also important, incumbent on us to explain it, to kind of be better at explaining these things at a cocktail party. Like, I'm kind of disappointing myself yeah. that I was not able to explain it in a way where you got the differences. <laughs> no, no, have that's right. better next time. <laughs> no, that's all right. It's very, these are very complicated issues. And I'm also just thinking about on the coverage in the news about how Taiwanese people have been lured into trafficking situations. There was some news coverage of how Taiwanese were trafficked to Cambodia and also the extortion cases and things like that. So that's also something that Taiwan has been needing to deal with in terms of its own people being vulnerable to that. What do you know about that and how that's been handled? Wow, great question. Over the summer, I gave a talk at New Bloom, you know, looking at this. But I think in the broader historical context of the anti-trafficking challenge facing Mm -hmm. Taiwan. I think, you know, a potential silver lining, hopefully, is that Taiwanese public understand that no one is, you know, this is an issue that affects everyone. There's a universality in that experience. 
But what I feared was that when I was back in Taiwan, I didn't see that much of an echo in drawing parallels with the migrant abuses in Taiwan. There was pretty awful ones too, right? I think when I was there, there was one where it was a wealthy couple being their domestic worker, I believe from in Indonesia, to the point, like her face, they put boiling water on her face and her, you know, her face was so damaged, her ears were so damaged that she couldn't even put on the mask, you know, the string for the mask on. And I just thought, you know, there needs to be more echo, you know, more resonance that this happens to everyone, right? Taiwanese going abroad, but also people coming to Taiwan and their outrage on what happened in Cambodia. Taiwanese citizens were not the only victims. They were also, you know, Cambodian, Vietnamese, also individuals from Hong Kong, I think Macau also featured. So it was a very complex case, but I think I wondered how much of it after the initial shock passed, how much of that accounting of, yes, it happened to everyone. Let's look at the underlying issues. How were they recruited? And there's always that thing I remember in the back of my mind is what happens when the public attention wanes, you know? Yes. For someone who has experienced trauma, there's no defined time of recovery. Are we committed to walking the long road with them in their recovery? Yeah. So complex issue, a lot of complex thoughts. Also, we would hope that as you alluded to, that people could make some connection to this because it's just the human experience, it's a humanity because if people could be tricked or trafficked to go to Cambodia, how can you not make the parallel and feel sympathetic to the migrant worker who has come to Taiwan and what they're dealing with? I would hope that there could be some kind of connection made there and some empathy for people to understand the importance of these issues and how it impacts people and how it, it just everybody. Yeah, and you know, that was also very much a case of forced labor, right? I mean, we have different labels that we can use attached to, to an issue. And it could it's it's all of them, right? It's human trafficking, it's forced labor, it's modern slavery, you know, it is all of that. But I think, you know, one of the hope that I have is that after the initial shock and reporting, that we look at the dynamics you know, what were the ways used to to compel the workers to stay in the compound and carry out the, the activities? It was retention of ID documents, right? Their ID documents were confiscated. But also, one example I'll just quickly give is many workers who were trapped, they feared reporting because they knew they were doing something illegal, right? They were in this online scamming activities. And that often comes up. I also hear it. It's like, well, the undocumented workers, are they also in a situation of forced labor because they know they're doing something illegal because they're in employment illegal? And I said, of course they are. The definition of forced labor doesn't make this dis- distinction of legal formal or informal employment, legal or illegal activity. We need to look at the way in which any work or services is extracted from a person under the threat of penalty where it was not voluntarily given. So I think when we start to understand these important distinctions and pillars, then we can look at things like supply chain issues and say, wait a minute. I don't know if there's any dialogue or conversation happening, but I think it actually could be interesting to tie these things together 
so people can relate to it a little bit more. Yeah. I think that's kind of interesting. No, and I think that's where, and I go back to this, the honest space where we need to be having these conversations, right? Like one example that often comes up, you know, you can hear employer says, well, we're not confiscating their passports. We're not doing the things that those bad guys did. We give them a locker where they can put it. And that's great if they have a locker they can put these documents in. But then the questions we look for when we're doing these type of assessments is do they have free and direct access to their lockers? So it's both like the the, the meaning and the form. So I think this is what I mean about this honest, difficult space where we need to look at these issues and say, okay, you know, glad about the lockers, but by restricting their access to the lockers, you're retaining, in effect, retaining their document and they don't have, they do not have in their possession. So it's not the same thing, but the effect felt on the part of the worker is the same. And I have some huge questions how Taiwan compares to other parts of the world in terms of these issues, or maybe we could try to look at something more positive. Like, are there any places in the world where you see there being more positive strides being done in this space, uh, in this kind of work that you're doing that Taiwan or other places in the world can learn from? I think a lot of countries are struggling with this. You know, I'm in the UK now where immigration is a very hot issue, to say the least. Our organization provides employment training for migrants, so refugees, asylum seekers, and other migrants in our community to get the support they need to get on the job ladder. That's what we do that. We say that. We also know from our own work the difficulties of getting them into the workplace, you know, discrimination being only one, but also the regulatory system around them that prevents them from going to work. It is very difficult. Taiwan, I say, it is not, I don't want to say it because, you know, it will be taken out of context and it's going to be like, it's going to show it up in a quote somewhere where it's like, Bonnie said that. <laughs> but I always try to say Taiwan is not exceptional as well, right? It is and it's not. It needs to do more to look at places where it can learn from. So because these issues of labor, of a declining population, of migrant rights abuses, other places we're seeing that. So it's not exceptional in that way. It can be exceptional if it takes proactive and honest step to change. I always say this, that prize is still out there. There's no place in the world right now that has implemented, as a matter of law, um, employer pays principle, zero fees, where low-wage migrant workers come not being indebted. Imagine that reality. That prize is still up for grabs. So I'm always saying, think of it as a diplomatic win as well. Be the first place. Be the first country to do this. How wonderful would that be? You know, we did that for same-sex marriages, right? It was hard. This can be the next prize, the next goal, because if it's not done proactively, change will come with sanctions. So better do it proactively. And the other place where you say about bright spots, think industry, the um, business, they have a huge role to play. They have a lot of leverage, a lot of influence that if you can get business on board and they try to do 
beyond what is required by domestic law. They can be leaders in that way. And in so doing, they can drag the cart forward. Maybe I don't see it in terms of country. I would love for Taiwan to get that prize. Going for zero fees, absolutely, with, with its heart. But I know that's going to be difficult. But before that, and that's the price I'm chasing. But before that, we can work with business for them to proactively do this work and say, I know domestic law doesn't require this yet, but I want that contract with outside brands that are starting to look at this. I want that contract and I choose to be operating at a higher standard and it's going to pay off because that's the world. That's where the regulations are heading. Import bans for products with forced labor. It's the US already has it. Canada has it. The EU, you know, talking very seriously of putting one in. So this is the world we're looking at right now. It's an opportunity for Taiwan. I think the last point is when Taiwan left the UN in 1971, right? It was at a time when the Taiwanese economy was also making this important transition from agriculture to the industrial powerhouse that we have today. It was difficult, right? It wasn't easy. But SMEs in that way, they drove the Taiwanese economy and they allowed Taiwan to kind of stay global at a time when Taiwan was not global politically. And I often think about that, right? Like how much effort and how much hard work and gut it took to let Taiwan to be seen like that. And, you know, I hear stories like in podcasts of like immigrants, you know, trying to have a foothold in North America, right? Their business branching out, learning English, doing complex business deals in English, where their kids often had to help out, right? These are family stories yeah. of the generation past. And I think very much, and that's the hope for this project, education and training for SMEs and also others, that we see another challenge today, a different way of doing business where issues of labor issues of social protection and of course the environment as well are also part of that calculation. How do we react to this challenge? I think will be the next chapter for Taiwanese SMEs and I have hope, always hope that we can adapt and do what's impossible and do what's hard. Yes, thank you for that. I mean, this is one of those issues that can seem quite complicated and difficult to tackle. To me, another issue would be climate change, right? It just seems like something that's so insurmountable, but we have to find the hope in there and to know that we can make some difference and change. That's right. And then we can get at a place where karaoke parties are just that. Happy people singing. <laughs> There's right, no misunderstanding right. with no <laughs> messages. <laughs> right. Yeah. Okay. So if my listeners want to know more about you or your work, how can they find you? Yeah, they can find me on our company's website. We are at workbetterinnovations.com. I'm also a research fellow at the Institute for Human Rights and Business. And that's at ihrb.org. I also, as a research fellow with University of Nottingham's Taiwan Studies Program, and also at the International Center for Cultural Studies at in Taiwan. 
So they can find me and you can find me always, I think. Yeah, on Twitter, I'm there on LinkedIn. Although I'm thinking about Twitter, though, I'm not very happy with what they're doing. So I haven't decided yet. Yeah, I'm not sure what to do about Twitter either. <laughs> I know, I know. So <laughs> busy now with the World Cup stuff to really, uh, and also this project to kind of think too much on other things. But it's yeah. always nice to have deep conversations. And I really, really appreciate this time, Felicia. I've been speaking with Dr. Bonnie Ling, Executive Director of Work Better Innovations, about forced labor and migrant worker rights. This episode of Talking Taiwan has been sponsored by NATOA, the North America Taiwanese Women's Association. NATOA was founded in 1988 to evoke a sense of self-esteem and enhance women's dignity, to oppose gender discrimination and promote gender equality to fully develop women's potential and encourage their participation in public affairs, to contribute to the advancement of human rights and democratic development in Taiwan, to reach out and work with women's organizations worldwide to promote peace for all. To learn more about NATWA, visit their website, www.natwa.com. Now it's time for you to show us some love we just found out that you can rate us on Spotify. Or if you're listening on Apple Podcasts or Audible, leave us a review there. It helps others to discover Talking Taiwan. To learn more about any of the items mentioned in this episode, visit our website, TalkingTaiwan.com. There will list any related links. Thank you for listening to another episode of Talking Taiwan. I'm your host, Felicia Lin. Talking Taiwan is brought to you by Forumosa.com.